Om Asatoma Sadagamaya Tamasohumaham Jyoti Gamaya Mritohormam Amritam Gamaya Avir Ahavir Maedhi Rudra Yate Dakshinam Mukaham Te Namaham Paha Indityam Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality and reach us through and through ourselves and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So my subject this morning is speech karma. So let's get right into it. Karma, we define as self-conscious, volitional, free will, human action. Every act of karma has a valence of good or evil that is determined by the law of karma. The law of karma is a universal, natural law that manifests in the physical world as the law of causation, or as Newton's third law of motion, the law of action and reaction. The doer of karma is the ego, the jivatma, the embodied soul. And every action that's done by the doer has two effects. One is immediate and subjective. The second is delayed and roundabout. The first effect of that action sculpts and molds our personality and our character. And we can think of an act of karma if we visualize a, a, a sculptor carving in a great block of marble. He takes the hammer and a chisel, and with one blow, he chips out a tiny little piece of that marble. That's an act of karma. Forms and shapes our character. It happens immediately and at once. The second effect, however, is more indirect and delayed. It goes out and circles around in the cosmos and returns to us in the course of time in like manner like a boomerang and shapes our opportunities and our destiny. And it's just like you say, if you saw someone who's playing a game of billiards, you take that pool cue, you've practiced a lot, you've practiced doing the, making the shot just right, and when you make your shot immediately, your habits are, good habits are reinforced that ball, however, is moving on the table. It hits all the others. They all roll around and they reconfigure. And maybe the result is to your advantage or to your disadvantage. That's the law of karma. Each one of us, we were created in the image of God. And our goal in spiritual life, well, we've fallen from that ideal. And we've fallen far away from our true nature. And the goal of spiritual life is to remake ourselves in that image, 
In order to do so, we have to do a lot of inner work, work on thought, speech, and action. This morning we're talking particularly about speech acts. Now you may say, uh, well, you usually don't think of speech when you think of karma. When you think of karma is action. But um, thinking is an activity. Speaking is an activity. And your physical behavior is an activity. Certainly speech is an action. It's performed with the Gyanendriya called Vak, that is the goddess of speech. We move our mouths. We make sounds. That's very much an action. It has begins, like any action, with a desire, with a belief, with a prior intention, with an intention and action, with an end result and a bodily movement. It has all the characteristics of any action, and it's governed by law. The three really go together, thought, speech, and action, because when we, to think, is just to speak low, and to speak is to think aloud, and to our behavior is just enacting our thoughts and our beliefs, and so working on our speech acts is very much a part of karma yoga. This morning I want to analyze our speech by using an old-fashioned, old ancient system, which is called, it comes out of the Sankhya philosophy. It's called the doctrine of the three gunas. Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas, the red, the white, and the black. Three Sanskrit words. Sattva is the noun. Sattvika is the adjective. We can shorten it into American English as Sattvik, because that's a good old-fashioned Indo-European suffix. And we can speak of the sattvika, the rajasika, the rajas, the rajasika is the Sanskrit, the rajasik and the tamasik. These are the three kinds of action. So we're, what we're going to do is just kind of take an inventory of our speech acts. And just imagine that everything you said in the past, all the sentences, somehow were uh, recorded in the akasha. And then we, got to, we could somehow we could review all those sentences. Maybe we could put them all into a big barrel, like a barrel of apples. And we're going to take that whole barrel, and we're going to overturn it. We're going to roll out all those apples, and we're going to try to separate the rotten apples, the good, saleable apples, and those which are kind of in between. So let's start by looking here at tamas. Tamas, the word, means literally darkness. It's associated with the element of earth. You think of a clod of earth, well, heavy, dark, iner inertia, characterized by inertia. Similarly, it manifests in the psyche, in psychology, in the tamasic state of mind characterized by gross ignorance. Tamasic speech is the voice of the shadow within us. Somehow, it, sometimes it speaks in public. And let's, give a, a, let's go through a little litany of some of the tamasic speech that maybe we can um, beware of. First in the list has to be, of course, immoral, untruthful speech, because the whole of language is based on the assumption that is on the truth condition. The whole of communication, the whole of human thought 
is based on the idea that what we, we say what we mean. And that the words, at least that we think, are what we mean that they think. So if we lie to others or to ourselves, that's a very fundamental offense against just the laws of nature. Other kinds of obvious Thomasic speech would be illegal, like perjury, or like slander, or like defamation of character in a court of law. Nah, those are taken for granted. But there's other kinds of Thomasic speech. We can think about harsh words. We can think about hate speech and about calling people names. And it's a, you know, John Stuart Mill, the great author of American liberal democracy, the first, the first law of a democracy. You do what, you could, you're free to do whatever you want as long as you obey one law, do no harm. There's a no harm principle. Similarly, it is in speech. Do no harm. Sometimes maybe we become very angry and lose control of ourselves and say very harsh, hurtful words. Once there was a boy who had that problem. He, um, he used to become angry just at the drop of a hat. He would say hurtful things. And as a result of which, he'd lost all of his friends. And so one day he came to his father. He said, Father, I have this problem. The father listened to him and said, yes. Uh, the father was a carpenter. He happened to have a bag of nails next to him. He said, son, take this bag of nails. And I want you to take this out with you during the day, whenever you lose your temper, and you say something wrong and harsh, I'm going to take one of these nails. You see that fence in the backyard? The wooden fence in the back, the post. Now I want you to take one of these nails and pound it into the post in the backyard. And so the boy took that. He took the, the bag of nails, and the very first day he pounded three nails into three posts. And like this it went on, but little by little he found it was a lot of work to do that. And so he found, after a while, it was only two nails, then it was one nail. Then pretty soon he thought he didn't have to do it anymore. So he went back to his father. He said, Father, he said, no, that's good advice. I think I'm cured. The father, yeah, said the father, well, good. Then let's see, why don't you uh, go out, see how long you can maintain this. And go out, and for every day that you maintain your good behavior, I want you to use the hammer and remove one nail from one of the posts. And so like this, the boy went out, removed one nail one day. Next day, yeah, he, he removed another nail. Pretty soon time passed. He had removed all the nails. Came back to the father. Father, I'm like, I'm cured. The father said, oh, yes, well, good. Let's go out there and look at that fence. They went out and looked at the fence. And the father said, you see that fence? There were once there were nails, now there are no nails, but you see, it's all full of holes. It's all marred. Similarly, it is. That all the things which you've said, all those hurtful remarks, they've had their impact, and although even if you've apologized, the scars remain. And so the boy learned his lesson about angry, hateful speech, a form of Thomasic speech. Let's look at another form. We could call it common swearing, like profanity and obscenity and vulgarity. Profanity, we know, just means taking the Lord's name in vain. That means using God's name just as a throwaway word to express our frustration and our annoyance. We're violating the third commandment of the Christian Bible, but people do it anyhow. 
and blasphemy, well, taking things which are sacred and which are holy to other, to other people and, and just taking things which are considered to be big and important and just treating them as if they're small and insignificant. See, everything in the world has a logos. It has a purpose. It has a, it has a for which it was made and for which it, it, and for which it exists. And it should be treated in accord with its nature. If you have tools, like in a toolbox, everybody knows that you don't abuse your tools. You don't misuse your tools. The idea is everything should be treated, I mean, ideally, should be treated as it deserves to be treated. Certainly saints and sages and God himself deserves to be treated with some reverence and some respect. And if we fail to do so, we have done an injustice. And in so doing, we violated the great law of justice, the law of karma. Common swearing, profanity, obscenity. We know that in the English language, there are 1,500,000 words. And out of those, we find that there are a handful of four-letter words seem to have become very common, part of common parlance. And some people say, well, that's just a sign of decadence in the society, just a sign of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Well, yoga psychology doesn't say, quite, it doesn't say it quite that way. But in yoga psychology, it says much the same thing. Because spiritual life, at least in Christian mysticism, is often portrayed as a, as a battle between the spirit and the flesh. The two don't go together. You can't have the two work together. It's like a man and a woman. Uh, if they're living in the same house, well, pretty soon they're going to get married. They're going to have kids. And um, they're going to merge into a unitary whole. So that's the obscenity is a form of tamasic speech that's eschewed by the karma yogis. Obscenity, vulgarity. Vulgarity just means using barnyard language when you're not in the barnyard. Let's say you're a farmer. You work on the farm. But when you come to town to have dinner with your citified friends, you change your clothes, and you change your register of speech also. You're going to upgrade your, your vocabulary and uh, why is that? Why is that? That's just a natural. That's just a natural. That's just being polite. Why do you do? Why do people do that? Because it would be to use barnyard language in that venue. It would just be poor taste. It would be speaking in bad taste. And as soon as we hear that, well, the red lights go on. Speaking in bad taste. The whole of Vedanta philosophy is based with the very first prerequisite for beginning the Vedanta philosophy. It's called viveka. That is discrimination. You have to be a man of discrimination. You have to have, this is a prerequisite, 
for even beginning to study philosophy. That is, in the ancient idealized times. That is, you have to have, be a person of discriminating taste. Not only in your, well, in your clothes that you choose, the food that you eat, the wine that you buy. Of course, especially, they mean, discrimination between the real and the unreal, between good and evil, but it's all the same principle. Either you have discrimination or you don't. And discrimination begins at square one, wherever you're at. And developing that discrimination is all baby steps forward in spiritual life. Let's look at another kind of, we're still on Thomistic speech. <laughs> and uh, let's look at common, uh, well, cursing, cussing people out. Maybe your neighbor makes a lot of noise. You stand at the window and you utter curse words. And well, for anyone who studied the mantra shastra and the philosophy of language, then you know that that is a very, uh, that's black magic. That's like when you, you say, well, those are just words you say. But no, words have meaning. And even though you didn't mean, if you didn't, even though you didn't mean them, which you probably did mean them, but if you didn't mean them, well, they still their words. That is, they have vibration. The vibrations go out, the cycles around, according to the great law of karma. In the Mahabharata, there's a story about a sage. His name was Durvasa. Durvasa, as some say, was one of the seven rishis. He was regarded as a great sage and holy man of enlightenment. But he had one uh, shortcoming. He had a short temper. And uh, when he would come into a village, he's begging, living by begging from door to door. He'd come to one door and he'd get food given to him in his, in his, just his open hands. He'd taste the food. If it was not to his liking, he might curse the householder. And being a great sage, not only is that householder, that poor householder, but it goes back for seven generations. Well, the word soon got out that uh, devotees, when they heard that Durvasa was coming into the village, they all locked their doors and they boarded up their windows and all the shutters, turned off all the lights. Looked like no one was around, no one's awake, no one is living here in this village. And poor Durvasa went through, didn't get a little mite of food. It was only later on in the story that Sri Krishna took uh, compassion on him, gave him something to eat. But he had to learn his lesson, as he did for in, on other instances, for having lost his temper and uh, spoken in that manner. The whole idea in yoga psychology is that words have vibrations. And our, our goal and purpose in spiritual life, generally speaking, is to raise the level of our vibration. We can have up the scales, a scale from zero to a thousand, words of hate and anger, and um, those are down like between zero and a hundred on the scale. We have to elevate our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions that prompt our speech, think, thought, feeling, speech, action. That's the way it goes. It's all part of a unit. Everything works like a cascade. And the goal of our life, spiritual life, is to upgrade our, our level of vibration. We want to live on a higher vibration. At least we want to get up above 500, get up to 550 or something. So this is Thomas' speech, examples of Thomas' speech. Another example is all just common complaining and groaning and griping. 
if you read in the teachings of the yoga philosophy, one of the first prerequisites for the practice of yoga is called titiksha, forbearance. Forbearance just means little things happen, annoyances happen. Don't let it bother you. That's a very, very fundamental spiritual, not even spiritual, it's a personality trait that's required of the disciple. The ideal of yoga is sameness of mind. Whatever happens, whether it's a glorious success or terrible, something of failure, the reaction of the yogi is no reaction. You have success, no reaction. You have failure, no reaction. That's the ideal of the karma yogis. But even before we reach that ideal, we can practice titiksha, that is forbearance. That's very difficult to do. And once a boy came to join a, a Trappist monastery, and he, um, he met with the abbot, and the abbot said, yes, we practice silence here. So you go and you just live there in the monastery. Don't say a word. You can come back in five years, and uh, then you can speak to me. And so the boy went off. Years passed, one year, two years, years passed. He kept the vow of silence, followed the routine. At the end of that time, he had already come back and speak to the abbot. The abbot said, well, boy, how are you doing? How is it going? And the monk said, the food is very bad. Uh, said the abbot, well, it just why don't you go back and just continue uh, your practice? So the, uh, so the monk went back. And uh, more time passed, another five years passed. Year after year, he observed silence, didn't say anything, came back, second audience with the abbot. Well, son, how are things going? And the young monk said, uh, the bed is very hard. Ah, it's okay, you know, you go back and just practice a little bit more. And so the boy went back and he practiced none. After another five years, he came back there's audience with the abbot. And the abbot said, well, how's it going? And the monk said, I quit. And the abbot looked at him and he said, well, I expected as much. All you've been doing is complaining anyhow. So that was the attitude, that was the attitude of the abbot. Thomas' speech, it's like um, junk food, just like junk food over-fried, fatty food, sugary food, does mean things to our health. Similarly, it is with the Thomasic speech in our practice of karma yoga. Let's look this up. Let's talk here about rajasic. Rajasic speech. Rajas, the word rajas here means energy. If we, can, if we think of earth, the, we're associating here with the, with the elements now of fire, of running, rushing water, of a, of a strong blowing wind. Rajas means, if we can imagine the wind, sometimes it's translated as a dust. We think about a wind, heavy wind blowing a dust storm of a dust storm. The energy, like a cyclone. That's Rajas. It kind of reminds us of our own mind. Because our own mind is in that governed by that guna of Rajas. As it's scattered, it's always active. It's always driven by the power of desire. And that mind, the yogis compare it to a monkey mind. A monkey mind is a monkey, of course, is naturally restless. But if you were to imagine that he were to drink some wine and he was going to begin to become, uh, he was stung by a bee, Hey, he would be even more wild and restless. Then maybe a demon entered his room, and he's just completely crazy. Now he's made to dance on a hot plate. Just imagine how crazy that monkey would be. Similarly, it is with the rajasic mind. And the rajasic mind is the mind of the worldly man. The worldly man is the favorite straw man of the Vedanta philosophers. 
of the religious teachers. The worldly man is just, well, that's just ourself. The jivatma, the ego, under the veil of spiritual ignorance, identified with the lower mind and the senses. And um, outward directed, uh, externalized, materialistic, riding the roller coaster of happiness and misery round and round. This is the, the mind of the ordinary person before the awakening of spiritual consciousness. So just imagine that this is the Rajasic mind ruled by that guna of rajas, scattered and externalized. And out of the fullness of heart, the mouth speaks, similarly rajasic speech. What is the content of rajasic speech? Well, it's all about the world. It's all about worldly things. That is, it is secular. It very rarely uh, has to do with much of soul, God, and religion. And if it does, then it's just, you just, it's all empty talk. And you remember how Sri Ramakrishna tells us about the mischievous boy living in a village. His name was Pogo. Didn't have anything to do one day. He wasn't doing his chores. He decided he went for a walk. He walked up the hill. There on the hill was an old, dilapidated, abandoned Shiva temple. The image had been removed long before, and it was all overgrown with the banyan tree growing up, the roots growing up through the floor, and dust everywhere. But he saw there, right in front of the temple, there was the temple bell. It was a gong. It is a big metal, round metal disc. It was used to call to sound the time for worship. And he just picked up a heavy stick and he began to hit that bell on a gong. The gong sound of villagers down working in the fields. They heard the bell. They thought, what is that? That's a temple bell. Why, a holy man must have come here. He probably has established a new image of Shiva. Oh, let's get cleaned up and let's go up. And so they just laid down all their tools. They got cleaned up and they all wended their way up the hill to the temple. They got up there and they saw oh, it looked like everything was the same. They went up and they went in there. There they saw Pogo. And they realized this is just this. He was chastised. Polgo, you foolish boy, how you made all this sound, all this empty sound, brought us up here, just sound for nothing. There's no image installed in your temple. This is Rajasic speech. It's empty speech. It is, um, it is excessive speech, we can say. It's like if you take the rajas of a flow of a rushing river, a flow of, a, a flow of water, it's like a stream of consciousness you can imagine is in turbu turbulent rush uh, of words, a flow of words, which is kind of uncontrolled. When I think about that uh, letter that was written by... Uh, by uh, Mark Twain, and uh, he was all about a river, on a river, you know, Mark Twain, that means, I looked that up once, look, two, means two, two fathoms deep, that means the boats can ply on the river. But he wrote this letter to a friend, it was five pages long, and at the end of the letter he said, I'm sorry to have written such a long letter, he said, I didn't have time to write a shorter one. Well, of course, he was being humorous, but we understand what he means. That, that, if we speak, that it takes time to think before you speak, think twice before you speak once. And uh, otherwise, you may be caught up in the flow of words. This Rajasic speech. And I'm thinking of that incident that we read about in the history books 
about the Edward Everett, who was the once dean of Harvard University. In 1863, he was invited to a memorial, speak at a memorial in Pennsylvania. But he got up and he held forth as it was the custom of around that time. You know, there were traveling orators. They didn't have TV or movies or anything, so they were entertained by traveling theater groups and orators would be hired by a lecture bureau and they would go and they would speak for two or three hours. Otherwise, the audience didn't feel like they got their money's worth. <laughs> Similarly, Edward Everett, he spoke for two hours and was going, finally he concluded and he sat down. After he was finished, the second speaker, he was the guest of the evening, not the featured speaker, was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln got up there and he spoke for two minutes. And we all remember still that famous Gettysburg Address. Good example of Satwick's speech, not Rajasik's speech. We can compare the two. And sometimes we know that as we think back, maybe on our day as spiritual aspirants, maybe we can think back about how we were at once caught up in a, a flow of words. We went on and on talking about some trifling, trivial thing that really didn't uh, lead anywhere. Or maybe we got into an extended argument about politics or current events, didn't go anywhere or resolve anything. And we just kind of feel as spiritual aspirants, we just kind of feel maybe we just wasted some good time. In the interest of time management and streamlining our life, we could have edited that out and had a more productive day. That's Roger's speech. Now, in religious traditions, they have a way of dealing. One way they have a dealing with that, and that is just to keep your mouth shut. And that's a spiritual practice that sometimes we read about uh, in the lives of the saints. In Sanskrit, it's called mauna. It means silence, practice of complete silence, total silence. For months and years, or for your whole life for that matter, it's a form of extreme asceticism. And some people do it for shorter periods of time, Mahatma Gandhi, for example, um, for many years, he um, used to pray on Mondays. He wouldn't speak. Maybe he would write on a, if he had to do some communication, he would write on a pad of paper. And Mahatma Gandhi, in the course of when he came to England on one occasion, he met with another guy well, maybe you've read back in history, he was one of the earliest Indian saints and holy men to come to America. His name was Mayor Baba. Mayor Baba was like an avatar. And he had hundreds of thousands of followers in India. And when he came to America, he had great success, uh, at least in Hollywood. He met all the famous movie stars. And, uh, but he used to practice silence. In fact, for 44 years, the last 44 years of his life, he, practiced, he, did, he, he was a Mauni sadhu. Of course, he used to travel with an interpreter who would kind of interpret, I guess, what he was thinking or what he meant. And he also used a kind of a cumbersome alphabet board. But he was practicing this asceticism. And this is something that's uh, the Vedanta tradition does not recommend the practice of asceticism. And, uh, well, for one thing, it's very difficult to succeed at it. You're pretty much bound to fail. There were four Zen Buddhist monks who got inspired by this ideal, and they took a vow of silence. And they began their law. This was going <laughs> to 
They began by sitting quietly in meditation. And as they were meditating, one of them opened their eyes. And he looked there and he, he said, the oil in the lamp is burning low. And the second monk looked at him and said, well, you spoke. And the third monk looked at him and said, we're not supposed to speak. And the fourth monk looked at me, see, all of you are talking. I'm the only one who hasn't said anything. <laughs> see how hard? Very hard to practice. Extreme abstinence in speech. Therefore, the ideal of the yogis is perfect moderation, temperance, the middle path. Let's look here at the third form of where we're sorting our apples here. The red, the white, and the black. Let's look at the sattvic speech. Sattvic speech. Governed by the guna of sattva. Associated with the element of ether. And a purified, rarefied uh, air in the upper atmosphere. Rajasic uh, means spiritual. And uh, the goal is to become, a, or the, the sattvic here means sattvic here means spiritual. So the goal here is to become sattvic in your thinking, in the thought, feeling, speech, and actions, and to upgrade your speech to sattvic speech. Sattvic speech is the content is all about soul, God, and religion. It's about higher uh, realities. That's because God, God attracts man. Sri Ramakrishna tells us, God attracts man. Like a magnet attracts an iron, piece of iron. But if that iron is embedded in heavy, thick mud, it won't move, it can't move. It has to be taken up out of the mud. The mud has to be washed off. And then the iron will naturally be drawn to the magnet. Similarly, it is with the sattvic person, the spiritual person. Their mind is drawn towards higher matters. They can be perfectly polite and uh, talking with people about many different things. But... Uh, if they were to have, if they, if they were to choose what they were to talk, what they were to eat, just like your diet, if you were to choose, maybe if you're polite, you can eat anything that you're offered. But if you were to choose, you choose to talk about soul, God, and religion. That's the sattvic speech. Sattvic speech is characterized in the Bhagavad Gita in uh, the uh, chapter 17. 15th verse, it talks about the austerity of speech. Notice this is austerity. This is not asceticism. It's not extreme. But it is an effort. It is making a control over our speech acts. And then there in that verse, it gives us three um, keys to sattvic speech. That is, it should be truthful should be pleasant and beneficial. Let's look at those, like three gates. You have to go past through three gates to be purified speech. First is truth. Truth in Vedanta is very important. It's always truth with a capital T. And although we speak about lower truth and higher truth, there's really only one truth. And the ideal, the person, or the ideal representation of the person who realized that truth was Sri Ramakrishna, as you read in the life of Ramakrishna. You can read so many incidents about how he is an exemplar, not only of being honest, but of being honorable, of being of veracity, of integrity, all of the different meanings of truthfulness that you can imagine, 
are exemplified in the life there, the biography of Sri Ramakrishna. That's because he was a Mahatma. Mahatma is defined manasyekam, vajasyekam, karman, yekam, mahatmanam. That is, a Mahatma is somebody whose thought, his speech, and his actions are all the same. That's why I say, you have your thinking, feeling, speech, and actions. They all go together. That's why when we observe the behavior of any, any person, our own behavior, it speaks, we're speaking our, of our own mind and heart. We can't, we can't conceal it. And the uh, so truth is the, is the first primary virtue of the sattvic person. Satyam eva jayate, the whole verse from the Mundaka Upanishad, it, that's, that's printed on every uh, Indian piece of Indian currency. Truth alone triumphs. That's the first virtue. Second virtue is pleasant. It seems far removed from that high spiritual ideal of truth. And um, the uh, Holy Mother, you remember how she used to say, yes, always tell the truth. But never tell a harsh truth. Never tell, never say tell an unkind truth. It's something that kind of it takes us. That we have to kind of think about that, what that means. Um, there once upon a time and. Ancient India, there was a Maharaja. He had a, uh, he wanted to have his horoscope read. According to your chart, you are going to personally perform the funeral ceremonies of all the members of your family and some of your friends. And, uh, the king, when he heard this, well, he was so, he loved his family, and he loved his friends, and he was so vexed with that astrologer, he threw him in the dungeon. They called somebody, call another, brought another astrologer. Give him all the information. That astrologer looked there, he calculated the birthday, the time, the different signs of the, of, of the zodiac, and then he did all the mathematics, worked in there with his Sanskrit books, came up with the same uh, answer, same reading, but he knew what had happened to the previous astrologer. And so he went to report his findings to the Maharaj. He says, Oh, revered sir, my finding is that you are going to live a long and happy life. You're going to outlive all the members of your family and all your friends. You live to a ripe old age. And the king thought, wow, well, that's good. That's very good. Thank you very much. And rewarded him handsomely. Well, you see the astrologer, he said the same thing, really. But he said it in a nice way. That the king would outlive all of his family and relatives. And so he observed that second... Uh, condition of truth, of, that is of sattvic speech, and that is of, it should be pleasant. Satya, priya, hita, the third one is called beneficial. A little word that's a little more difficult for us to understand. In order for all of our, for our speech to be spiritual, it should be beneficial. Now what does that mean? Does that mean everything that I say has got to do some, help somebody somewhere? Well, the underlying idea here is that before you can begin karma yoga, you have to be established in doing your dharma. Doing your dharma. First you learn how to do your dharma, that is, do your duty, and then you can begin practice of karma yoga. 
As long as you're doing your duty, you are serving the welfare of the world. That means the welfare of the sum total of all beings, that is the collective. That's the whole idea of dharma, that the individual, just in doing his own free will, natural work, benefits the, the whole corpus of humanity. So if you're doing your dharma, you are doing that which benefits the world. Even if you're talking to your friends, talking to your family, that's all part. It's in line with your spiritual ideals. This could be a long commentary on the Hita. Vedanta, particularly in this tradition, carries it to a whole new level. That's why in the, this Ramakrishna order, this monastic order, the motto of the order, that is of all the activities of the members and the devotees of the order is Atmano Mokshartam, Jagadhitayacha. That means whatever I'm doing, I'm doing for my own liberation and for the good of the world. So that's something that we can kind of meditate on. What is the meaning of that? So that sattvic speech has those characteristics and that content differing from rajasic speech and from tamasic. So like this, we can take an inventory of our speech acts, sort them in our mind, and uh, set our ideal. Our ideal now is to work with the great law of karma, which governs our thought, our speech, and our action. This morning we've talked particularly about speech acts. But we have a lot of um, karma around our speech behavior. And therefore it's good for us for, to be mindful of our speech as part of our karma yoga practice. The subject next Sunday is on doing your duties. And Swami Sarvadevananda will speak. Om Dyo Hushantihi Antariksha Hamshantihi Pritivi Hishantihi Apa Shantihi O Shadaya Shantihi Vanas Pataya Shantihi Vishwe Deva Shantihi Brahma Shantihi Saravam Shantihi Shantireva Shantihi Same Shantiredhi Om Shantihi Shantihi Shahantihi Om Peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal universal peace enter our souls and beings. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all.